Report in. Red 10 standing by. Red 9 standing by. Red 3 standing by. Red 6 standing by. Red 9 standing by. You're listening to the Ion Cannon Podcast. Laugh it up, fuzzball. Your source for entertainment reviews from a galaxy far, far away. This is it. He laser clickers. Welcome to the Ion Cannon Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Stephen, and I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Tom and William. And you know what, guys? Uh, we did it. We survived. It's been months, years, I'm not sure. But we are talking about Mandalorian Chapter 9, titled The Marshal, and I am excited. So am I. Oh. I thought it was a really good episode. It's, it's hard to believe like the Mandalorian is back. It, it, it didn't even really sink in. Until like I started watching it, like okay, the show's actually back. Yep. Like we've been talking about this for so long. It's been since, you know, the beginning of the year, um, and I I am really excited about how they've kicked things off. I'm really excited to see mm-hmm. where they take this season. I think there's so much potential, uh, and I just can't wait to get into get into it and and discuss the uh, the episode in more detail. Supposedly, from the sound of it, there was a lot of Easter eggs I may have missed. I picked up quite a few. Yeah, Tom, Tom, Tom. No, you know how this works. We don't get to talk about the Mandalorian yet. We have. I'm not. I'm not. I mean, I'm you're just, kind of talking about the Mandalorian. I'm just a little. Bit. I was talking eggs, which it's basically <laughs> Halloween today. It's not Easter. Well, um, William. Speaking of eggs, why don't you tell us about our announcements? I don't know what they have to do with eggs, but you're going to make that work. You're close right? enough. <laughs> well. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, it's funny cause, uh, exactly Steven, but you know, last time we were talking about, uh, that's the closest I can get it to work. Uh, but last that week was way better than I expected. Last so week we were talking, off to you. we were talking about, uh, uh, Thrawn ascendancy, uh, chaos rising. And, uh, for those of you who listened to the episode, um, probably know we really, really enjoyed the book. It was mm-hmm. absolutely fantastic. One of the best Star Wars books in in recent memory. If you haven't listened to our review, I did please go check it out. I think you'll hopefully enjoy it. Um, but funny enough, you know, we were talking on the episode, like when's the next one coming out? We didn't really know. Well, uh, uh, earlier this week, Lucasfilm and Delray announced that Thrawn ascendancy, greater good. The second book in the trilogy will be released on May the 4th of next year. So we're just a couple months away, I guess seven months, Seven months? No, six six months away. Six months away mm-hmm. uh, from the book's release. So, really excited about that. Giving us something really good to look forward to next year. Out of what's been going on this year, this is something I'm really looking forward to. Mm-hmm. It's going to be amazing. And, and that's you know, so much sooner than I thought it would be. It, it yeah. is. It is. And it sounds, uh, it sounds like a really fun book. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I'm really excited to see where where Thrawn or Zahn or Zahn takes the uh, the story. There's a lot of a lot of potential. You know, according to the publisher's summary, um, Thrawn and his allies race to save the Chiss Ascendancy from an unseen enemy in the second book in the epic Ascendancy trilogy. Um, Thrawn's latest triumph still rests newly on his shoulders, despite leading the Chiss to victory and bringing glory to the House of Myth. The true threat to the Ascendancy has not yet been extinguished. Their foes do not send threats or ultimatums or mass ships on the edge of the chaos. Their weapons come cloaked in smiles and generosity, gifts offered freely, services granted unconditionally. Across the Ascendancy, seemingly inconsequential events could herald the doom of the Chiss. 
As Thrawn and the Expansionary Defense Fleet rally to uncover the enemy plot, they discover a chilling truth. Rather than invade chess capitals or pillage resources, the mysterious enemy strikes at the very foundation of the Ascendancy by, wielding, by widening the rifts between the nine ruling families and the 40 great houses below. As rivalry and suspicion sow discord among allies, each warrior must decide what matters most, the security of their family or the survival of the Ascendancy itself. So, sounds uh, sounds pretty great to me. But that's that's such a great teaser. It is. It is. But you know what? That's that's six months away right now. Yep. And for the next eight weeks, we're gonna be talking all about the Mandalorian mm-hmm. season two, starting with the Marshall. And Tom, do you want to give us a little more details about this this episode? Sure. This one uh, is Williams called. The Marshall. This is Chapter 9 in the Mandalorian series, starting off Season 2. This was directed by Jon Favreau and written by Jon Favreau. And in this episode, the Mandalorian is drawn to the Outer Rim in search of others of his kind. It was short, sweet, to the point synopsis. Mm-hmm. But um, the episode I, itself was not yeah, short. I, I, think, I think we <laughs> need to get into it because what 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 did you guys think of Jon Favreau? I'm actually directing a Mandalorian episode. I mean, more please. This was fantastic. Like, it was everything I've, I've wanted. You know, this was actually the longest, uh, the longest episode of The Mandalorian yet. That surprised me. It was the, as long as it was. Yeah, it was forty nine minutes long, and which is which is nice. And I hope actually more of the this this season airs on the lar- larger side. But honestly, I was just really impressed by. Not only the story, and we'll, we'll get into some of the plot points and all the plot points and the, the Easter eggs and that sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. But they, I don't feel like they really wasted a lot of time mm-hmm. getting into the story, right? Uh, I, there were plot points I thought they might drag on for a while. They, they jumped into those right away, gave us lots of backstory. And I thought, even like story aside, the show just feels so much bigger. Not just in terms of the plot mm-hmm. and the runtime, right? But in terms right. of the scale of the production, like the set pieces were really yeah. impressive. The actions felt so much bigger and more detailed. We know season one had a large budget. Like the budget was, I think about $10 million an episode. Like it's, it was up there with Game of Thrones, but this feels even bigger. And part of that might be because they already have a lot of the tech in place now and can yeah. spend it on other things. Um, and a lot of the, 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 um, the costumes and the props and all that kind of stuff have already been made. But my goodness, it just felt massive in, in, mm-hmm. in a good way while still being a small, more self-contained story. It's not like it's, you know, there's a death star they have to go destroy, but it felt still focused and small, but like the, just the depth of detail. And when there was action, just the, the quality of the, the visual effects, the scale of the action, everything was just, it was, I was very impressed. I was mm-hmm. very impressed. You, your yeah, guys thoughts? They, they really, they brought they brought to the next level, I'd say. It's yeah. they took all of the pieces that they delivered on and kind of perfected in season one. And I feel like they like I said, they brought to the next level. They delivered on it. Mm. Um it's one of those things that makes me really curious this I like I wonder if the budgets for these episodes were larger or similar to the previous season, or if yeah. it's just a matter of like they just they've figured out how to do it. Um, maybe we'll find out when they do their um their director talk like they did for the first behind season the they'll do the, yeah. the behind the scenes stuff maybe 
Um, yeah. I mean, right now we won't know, uh, but it may come out at some yeah. point. It just reminds me so much of uh, they just, they've figured out. I'm trying to figure out how to frame like frame this correctly. Um, it happened a lot less nowadays because I think TV shows have to succeed so much faster. But I remember so much of older television, like 90s and 2000s, was a lot of like season one. There's like a 20 episode season, and you're lucky if you get five good episodes out of it. Right. Uh, it's the actors are still finding their feet. The tone and writing is still finding its feet. The story isn't quite there yet. And then they come back for season two. They're like, got it. We know what pieces were good. Now we can build on top of that. And mm-hmm. uh, I love season one of The Mandalorian, but there were episodes where I was like, eh, that was, was okay. I thought right. it was my favorite type of thing. Um, there were episodes where it felt kind of frustrating. It's like, oh no, I just I wish we'd go back to the main story that I actually care about instead of like kind of getting pulled into this random side quest that doesn't seem to matter. Mm-hmm. And this episode, I really felt like learn from those lessons in season one. And like this episode, uh, like the my spoiler for my review at the very end, like this episode felt so much to me like almost like a video game quest that you go on. <laughs> yeah. Like your your objective, I need to get across the street. And on the way, oh, I meet this pe- person, I meet this person. Oh, they have a conflict. Now I have an opportunity to resolve their conflict. Oh, to resolve that conflict, I have to go and do this other side quest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, it takes you along, and then you get to the end, you're like, oh, I didn't actually get across the street yet, but I didn't mind because I pulled into this really deep and cool idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what this episode felt like to me. It was just a really awesome side quest where we didn't progress the main story. We started it, which is good, mm-hmm. but right. it it spent most of its time diving into this awesome kind of side detail and expanding the world. And it did all of the things that I loved from season one and then fixed the things I didn't like from season one. And it just made it, made mm-hmm. it for an awesome episode. You know, it's, I, it's funny how you keep mentioning season one. The one thing I appreciated about it was the really quick summary of season one at the beginning to where you were mentioning how some stuff worked and some stuff didn't. They took certain parts of season one for that summary and it's kind of like that one episode where um, they went to the planet to protect the villagers. I like how they kind of only used dialogue over that and didn't use anything as a flashback to it. But you got to see what happened in season one to literally set up everything going on into the season. It's almost like a good, it's the good summary to where if you really didn't really watch the first season, it gave you a really quick summary, very succinct, to the point, boom! Now you're kicked off into the uh, season two. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the the episode, it, the 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 plot itself. So, I don't know about you guys, I wasn't really sure where they would start. Right? Were they going to start with Moff Gideon and the dark saber, or mm-hmm. or we knew that the, you know the, the Mandalorian was going to be looking for the Jedi or or the or the child's kind, right? Maybe maybe the same species, maybe the Jedi. It was made pretty clear, I think, in the trailers that it was the Jedi. And, um, and, and then that's what he ends up doing, right? We don't, we don't really get a lot of, um, the empire or the imperial remnant. We we go straight into the Mandalorian's journey to find, uh, to find the Jedi and to start with the Jedi, to find the Jedi, he needs to find other Mandalorians, more of his kind. And that's really what this episode is about is finding other Mandalorians so that he can, uh, uh um, find the, eventually find the Jedi, and I, mm-hmm. I think this is going to be like the big, you know, thrust of the of the of the season, right? Is 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 trying to find the the Jedi, uh, mm-hmm. but we start on this. Uh, uh, I'd say I think my probably my least favorite part of the episode. Like I love the episode, to be clear, 
if I was going to pick a part that was my least favorite, it's probably the fighting ring at the beginning. I think it was more of a necessary piece. Um, but I still like the, the dynamic was cool. You know, we get to see this um, very interesting, uh, very interesting planet. Almost reminded me of Obadiah. We don't really know what, what the name of the planet is, but it's like an Obadiah with, like, covered in, uh, um, in graffiti and stuff with these like very creepy red-eyed creatures eyeing them in the shadows. And they end up at this 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 fight ring uh, with the contact Gore Koresh, uh, a, a one-eyed Abyssian played by uh, Jason uh, Luguzamo. And uh, of course, it's it's a trap. And he's actually looking for. Uh, <laughs> I almost wanted to say it. I'm sorry. I almost wanted to say it. It's a trap. Admiral Akbar, yes, would be very excited. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a, it's a nice you know start slower mysterious way to start the episode right where you get in there mm-hmm. he's looking for the Mandalorians and and. Turns out, no, Gore is actually uh, uh, trying to lure Mandalorians out of hiding so that he can kill them and take their best car. It's actually it's a really interesting plot point. Like the Mandalorians are so rare, right? That he's trying to hunt down Mandalorians and steal their armor. Really fascinating. And that's a fascinating right. thing. To, sorry to to touch on that. When you see this in the uh, trailers, you kind of got the feeling that maybe it was. He was after the Mandalorian, still for the child, mm-hmm. not so much for the Mandalorian armor. That was the thing that I really liked about it. It was the twist away from the child's not the the goal anymore that the bounty hunters are after. They're now after the Mandalorian himself. Yeah, I very much I'll actually disagree with you, William. I really like the opening sequence. Um, I had a tad it was, bit of a problem, but go ahead. For me, it was meant like it felt very much to me of we needed a it's almost the short story within like at the beginning of a book or something like that. Like its goal is to establish the like reestablish who the character is, Mm -hmm. remind us of the relationship with the child and demonstrate that you don't mess with the Mandalorian. Right. And it I think it delivers on all those pieces extremely well. And I actually liked seeing and maybe it's because I'm a sucker for like seeing actual vibroblades as described in like legends as we've seen them before. Oh, yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. The visual effect on them was awesome. Yeah, they were really cool. It also served. It was the cantina scene where we get to show off new alien designs, see old alien designs like I just. Honestly, as a whole, I just really, really liked the sequence. I thought it was a perfect kind of capsule of what the Mandalorian has been thus far, and then it mm-hmm. served to kind of kickstart us into the next season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, yeah. To, be, to be clear, I didn't dislike it. I think if I had to pick something that was my least favorite in the episode, it was probably that that sequence. Ah, okay, um, right. Just because I'm less of like a fight ring guy in general, um, but I did. I thought it was cool. I, I like I said, I liked the, the the kind of the twist that Gore was actually after the Mandalorian. Yeah. Um, and like the way <laughs> the way like the Mandalorian ends up interrogating him and getting the information like, oh my gosh, he has to go back to Tatooine, right? Uh, and, and then just like leaves him there hanging uh, and like shoots out the lights is just as like the creatures come in and, yeah. and like, try to eat him. And that's, and, the, and that's the best thing oh. I liked about it because it's like, you know what? I'm not the one that has to kill you. Right. I just don't have to save you. Mm-hmm. And then he shoots the lights out. And but my my biggest thing about it that I had just a tad bit of a problem with it, the the Gamorrean guards that were fighting, it it you're so used to them being so over you know so powerful, so big. These guys are a little bit on the skinny part, and just something about it just it just that was my There's only different types thing of where it just kind of didn't work for yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, Sid. I, I, this is actually, I wonder how much of this was maybe Dave Filoni's influence, but like, I always appreciated that was something we saw in Clone Wars mm-hmm. and Rebels is that 
you know, of course, Gamorreans will come in different shapes and sizes compared to what we saw. Very you know, good point. When there's the one prop in uh, episode four. Right. Good point. Uh, episode right. four. Episode six, excuse me. I, I got um, the idea. But I, was, I also appreciate that, like, yeah, of course, somewhere in the Star Wars universe, there is the equivalent of, like, the WWE wrestling ring. Where <laughs> it's, it's all fake, fun. but... Yeah. Well, it's fake yeah. until um, until Gore kills one of the, uh, the, the, the victor before they can uh, uh, land the killing blow. Mm. True. <clears throat> so brutal. And I... And I will also say, I, I also am aware, I'm a sucker for any time shields show up in reality, like on screen somewhere. Um, like, well, I, William, I think you and I had this conversation when we were playing Squadrons of like, oh, one of my favorite things about Squadrons is that like you can actually like see and get understand the impact that shields have mm-hmm. in the Star Wars universe. Like that's a it's the most important thing. Why don't we see this more often? Uh and I just so I really appreciate seeing the vibroblades like bouncing off the shields and things like that. Again, so reminiscent of uh, actually Knights of the Old Republic, which yeah. this was not the first and only time we would see that in this episode. There's a lot of Kotar influence, yeah. And uh, I, I also say I just love like the Mandalorian himself is just he's such a great like the fact that he walks in there and you know Gore wants him to like bet his Beskar on that the, the you know the the, 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 the Gamorian who's about to win would actually win. And the Mandalorian's like, no, I'm not a, uh, I, you know, I don't, I'm not a gambler. Mm-hmm. And then of course, you know, Gore shoots him, and uh, and and then later when the Mandalorian is still like exuding complete confidence, right? I, he's surrounded, all the guns are pointing at him, and he's like, yeah, tell me where the Mandalorians are, or I'm just gonna kill you. And and Gore's like, I thought you weren't a gambler, and he's like, I'm not, and just activates the whistling birds, like ah, it's just peak Mandalorian. Yeah. And, yep. it's, and and naturally the the comedy comes from the child, which we've all seen in the commercial where he closes the the little crib right before because the child knew what was coming. Everybody knew what was coming because that whole fight sequence once once the whistling birds went out, and then the Mandalorian just was not going to take names. And especially again back into the commercial where you see that last guy get it, I still sit there and just have to go whoa every time you see that knife fly. You don't see the impact. Yeah. You see the guy just fall over. Just you still have a great reaction to that. I could watch that whole sequence over and over again because it's done uh, shot so well. Yeah, I will say I also really appreciate. Um, I was going. What was I going to say? Oh no, I totally forgot my train of thought. Anyway, oh, no. continue. Someone else. Well, okay. So well, speaking of ahead, recover, we were talking about references earlier. This fight seems to be actually our first two fun references. The first is who I almost positive is constable Zuvio watching in the fight ring. I'll have to watch it again. Um, looked exactly like constable Zuvio. And in, in fact, um, you know, if those of you don't, I'm sure I'm almost all of our listeners know this, but like constable Zuvio was supposed to be in the force awakens and was cut out and never ended up, uh, um, being in the, in any of the films, even mm. though there was like a toy made of him. And so that's kind of cool to see. And uh, uh, when Gore is like being strung up, he's he said he makes a reference to uh, the droid Gatra, which, if you'll remember, is from um, a number of the the like from like Last Shot and uh, Tarkin and a whole bunch of different uh, 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 books with these. It's basically this like droid uh, army of sorts. Um, that were like trying to fight for droid rights, part of the Crimora syndicate and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was cool to see that them show up as well. Just like little, little, little references here and there. 
Well, the, the biggest reference that happens is we get to travel back to Tatooine, which that was very cool because I love how he landed in the same docking bay he did before. And I love how you had um, it, it's Maz, Maz Pel, Pelgo. Peli, oh, 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 oh Maz Pelgo. Sorry. Yeah, the city. Pel, sorry, sorry. My, okay, but I, I'm talking about when she, when he landed the shuttle. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, it was Pelimoto, correct? Mm-hmm. That okay. I love how she just loves the child and she's just like, you know, I'll buy a mafia. How much you want for it? Hey, you know, I'm just kidding. But I just love how she just has this really cool attachment to the child. Mm. She's, you know, I actually liked her a lot better in this episode. Yeah, um, she was, she was, it seemed like the character was more relaxed in this episode compared to the first time you saw her. Oh, wait, see, interesting. I liked her less in this episode mm. than previously. Really? She just, she came off a little bit, and maybe I, I, I haven't, I haven't rewatched season one recently, so maybe I'm just misremembering the character a little bit. But she just came off a little more cheesy this time around. Like I didn't care as oh. much for the like the byplay with the uh, with a child. She and was very like that. cheesy last time. Yeah, <laughs> I, was I thought she was more relaxed with it. I, I, I guess I guess it's a different feel for it. I thought she was more relaxed with it, and also the same thing was more relaxed when it came to the droids because she knew he didn't like the droids to begin with. But then it was just like she made that really quick comment. Oh, it appears that you can now handle a bit of the droids, but you know, droids, please be careful of a ship and what happens. They're, they're repair droids. They're, they're screwing up all over the place. They even have, have a thing, you know, suction cup to his face. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, you know, I, yeah. Steven, what, I, was, yeah, I did appreciate in the sequence that, uh, we got to see a familiar astromech droid as well. Mm-hmm. Show up briefly on camera with a newly repaired motivator. It seems. I, I love it. And you could see like the camera even lingers on yep. hits on R five D four's head with the, the where the motivator blew in a new hope. So they're clearly like trying to remind people. And even though R five D four did show up in the cantina last season, it's really cool to see, oh yeah, he's now working for uh Pelimoto. We don't know how long he's been the droid has been working there, but that was really cool and he was like the one that, you know, put up the holographic map so that Peli could point out the location of Mos Pelgo, which is where uh, uh, the which is where Gore said a Mandalorian would probably be on Tatooine, and just in general, I really appreciated how you know, like if you think about it, season one we had Sorgan, we had Arvala Seven, we had Navarro, and we had Tatooine. There weren't a whole lot of locations, and Arvala Seven and Tatooine are honestly very similar looking on screen, like um. I love both yeah. planets, but they they're if you're not an experienced viewer, you'd probably think you're just on Tatooine the whole time. Um, and so the fact that they're returning to Tatooine again could in some ways feel a little convenient, right? Like, oh, okay, I'm going to go back to Tatooine again. Even though we all love Tatooine. From a storytelling standpoint, it's like, really? They just happen to have to go back to the place they were at, you know, a couple episodes ago. Um, however, I thought they did a really good job of handling it, where it didn't feel like that. Some people you could no, I think you could think that uh, initially if you're just like kind of looking at it at a high level, um, but the way they handled it, the way they said you know even you know the Mandalorian was like I was just there what the heck you know mm-hmm. I, I thought all of that was handled quite well. Yeah, I think this is I'd actually say this is something maybe the Mandalorian didn't do as well in season one, but showed really well here is anytime you go back to something you want to try and add to it, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
And I think it's something that Star Wars is it struggled with, especially in some of like expanded media and things. Is everything starts to feel so tightly connected? Oh, we're on Tatooine. Oh, we must be in Mos Eisley, and we're gonna see the Mos Eisley Cantina again, and we're gonna mm-hmm. like see the same sites that we've been seeing for forty-five years, whatever it is mm-hmm. now. Um, the thing that this episode did so well with Tatooine is yes, we get the same kind of sand vistas, the types of things we saw in Episode Four and Episode Two, uh, and things like that. But we also got to see like new, different environments. We got to spend more time with Tuscan Raiders, which we'll talk about. We got to mm-hmm. see yeah, Mos Pelgo, cool. which is a very different kind of town. We got history of Mos Pelgo, and you know, oh, it's a mining settlement, and uh, but some things have happened there that may have changed it, and all these little details that just feel really, really cool. I think it mm-hmm. makes Tatooine feel larger, mm-hmm. um, and at the same time, still connected. Ah, yes, we've got Mos Eisley, we've got Mos Espa. Now we know there's Mos Pelgo, and there's a different size to it, and we kind of have a sense of how long it takes to get there. It's, oh, it's two or two to three days or so uh, by speeder from Mos Eisley, and it just those details I think go mm-hmm. go a long way to making the universe feel big um, yeah. and interesting. Is probably yeah. the more important piece than even that. And, and I appreciate when it came to Mos Pelgo, how they explained that at one point it was there, but then how it was kind of like, quote unquote, lost. And that's why you made that. That's why it felt natural to be in there, because you have you've known about Mos Eisley, Mos Espa. And then it's like it made it natural that this all of a sudden shows up out of nowhere well, because it gave a really good backstory really quick. Yeah. And it's a small mining s- settlement. So, like, yeah, of course, it wouldn't be you're not going to like, you know, Anakin or Obi- Obi-Wan or Luke wouldn't probably have traveled there. Yeah, it's easily you know. easily overlooked. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I thought it was really cool, and and you know, uh, I like I just appreciate how much backstory we got too. They weren't really like dragging things out, um, and we'll we'll talk about the the biggest backstory in in just a moment. But even little things like, you know, what happened to 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 Moss Pelgo, Moss Pelgo, and how they were taken over by the mining collective after Endor. You know, little things like that uh, were were cool. Um, okay, but let, let's let's talk about let's talk about what the Mandalorian finds in Mos Pelgo. So he arrives in Mos Pelgo, and he leaves the child on the speeder. And I'm I'm not sure he why he did that, but that's fine. Whatever. Uh, he leaves him in. Well, the he box. does actually. He did. I, he, so I have the same reaction. He doesn't actually leave him on the speeder because he the child walks in around the like door and watches yeah. like I'm pretty sure two he, seconds ho- he hopped out. Pretty sure he hopped out. Well, he did hop out, but he did originally leave him on the speeder. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But like if he hops out, my assumption is the Mandalorian knew he was going to be able to hop out and didn't care. Like he was True. aware of what was going on. It just wasn't a priority for him. Right. Um, I don't know. It's fair. But he walks into the cantina. A different cantina, more of a saloon almost, and 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 talks to the pr- the proprietor a week way, and then we get the big entrance of the marshal. What Boba Fett? What Boba Fett? Where oh. <laughs> exactly? Thank you. Thank you I was gonna say. Dad. Sorry, I was gonna ask what your what your um what your first thought was when you saw the marshal standing there wearing Boba Fett's armor. Steven, go first. Uh, actually, so obviously rumors have been flying that Boba Fett's going to be in here for a while. Um, we've seen the kind of foot in the episode uh, back in season one. And actually, I'd say my biggest concern in some ways at the time when we first saw him was that like, uh, oh God, I was thinking like, is this, is this going to be the introduction of Boba Fett? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, 
I was looking I'm like his armor doesn't I don't feel like his armor fits very well. <laughs> uh, and so I, I had this moment where I, I was I was like, I can't he, he just looks wrong. And I was like, it's definitely his armor. Like it's clearly a Boba Fett's armor, but it doesn't look right. Um and I was kind of so I was doing kind of a comparison of uh the Mandalorian and the Marshall are like, well, I guess like, does it, is it just fit differently? Like, mm. and I'm, I'm doing this internal monologue of like, <laughs> is this what Boba Fett looks like in like four five and six? And it's, I've just forgotten cause it was in a movie and there's <laughs> a, like, it just, the Mandalorian looks so much better. Uh, before I kind of, I think I finally settled. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think this is actually Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then of course we find out that's, that is the case. It's, it's not Boba Fett surprise. Well, he right. says something, right? He talks. Yeah. And you're like, wait, well, that's that's not quite Boba Fett. And then he sits we down. Heard Boba Fett in forever, so that, exactly. that's not a guarantee. Right, and then True, he sits down at the table and takes off his helmet, and you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, now wait, but wait a minute, but wait a minute. The the marshal does sit there, look at the Mandalorian, and says, and does say, I never met a real yeah. Mandalorian. So he basically True. is stating right then and there, he's not a real Mandalorian, but also <laughs> realize. If you go back to the Karen Travis books, and basically when it comes to Dinger Jaren, that you, you don't have to be a true Mandalorian to be a Mandalorian. Well, no, and and, okay. and, and honestly, and, Boba this, Fett is not but, technically a Mandalorian either. That's very true. In this case, though, my feeling when I got to see the Marshal for the first time, yeah. it, it's one of those things in which you're looking at it going, that's Boba Fett's armor, but it was so beat up. And, and you're looking at it going... It was ill-fitting. There was the modification, I think, to his um, the the flamethrower arm gauntlet. I think it had the tubes coming from the back. So you knew at that point it was either a very beat-up uh, Boba Fett or that wasn't Boba Fett at all. I actually thought that armor, how he had the Marshall had it worn, looked really cool. You know, even oh, it though did. And it's, yeah, I yeah. totally agree. I really appreciated. Uh, it's a it's a testament in the same way that um i forget who is the actor who is in the mandalorian's armor for uh, much of season one but like the physicality of the role when the marshal shows up he doesn't feel like boba fett mm-hmm. and you so you have this moment of your uncertainty and i really appreciated just how much they played it up isn't quite the right word but like how many things go to making that feel wrong right. things like when you see the marshal from behind you can kind of see his neck and i'm like i don't you never mm-hmm. see the mandalorian's neck underneath his armor right i don't right. know what's there i don't know if it's like just cloth or if there's armor like is is the armor like riding a little bit higher on him like does it just <laughs> not sit as well and it just yeah. all these little things like you feel every time he's on camera you're like that's that's not boba fett honestly right. it almost felt like he was wearing a halloween costume of sorts you know, it's like it's yes. like kind of close, yeah. but like, yeah, 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 but yeah, like yeah. you're yeah. just it's kind of off. You know, it's like okay, you, you got eighty percent of it. It's close enough, but it's not really Boba Fett. And actually, I have to give credit to our our, our good friend of the show, uh, Aaron Goins, who hosts uh, Star Wars Bookworms, because uh, immediately after the episode aired, he put on uh, he had like a Boba Fett helmet, and he put on a Boba Fett helmet with a red scarf, and he looked he looked exactly he exactly did. like the Marshal. It was uh, it was pretty great, uh, yeah. but uh, but no, I, I I liked how he looked kind of funny, right? He was just off, not and almost like a um, like a low rent Boba Fett, <laughs> a, a low rent Boba Fett. But I think the one thing for me that stuck out 
he was still he, he was a low low rent Boba Fett, but it sounded like he was still a very good, let's just say, marshal mm. for the town. Oh, very competent. I yeah. Mean, yeah, he was very competent. It's not one of those things in which, okay, he was the best thing about it is he was not a pretender. Yeah. And he actually could shoot, and it seemed like he could actually protect the town because he was the marshal. And so having the Boba Fett armor the way it fit but still basically uh, have a swagger of being a lawman that worked for that town. Yeah. And and that's why yeah, you're looking at the armor and it's like, he, he even knew how to, the coolest thing about it is he even knew how to bring down the Mandalorian um, targeting thing and, and do the photon torpedo off his back. <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, Oh, that's freaking cool. That's almost it's like, one thing that I really, go ahead. I really appreciate Like we got it with, we got it in season one with the Mandal, uh, the actual with Din Djarin as well. But like Boba Fett never fires off his missile that I remember, at least in no. five and six. Right. No, only Django. But Fett we all the prequels. Right. And it's one of those yeah. things where it's like, we know he can do it. It's one of those things that start like, uh, you know, there's the jetpack with the firing missile and you're like, I want to see it. And so getting to see it in action, it's just it, it satisfies that inner yeah. child of like, yes. Yeah, it's not quite Boba Fett, but Boba Fett fired his missile well, from his jetpack. It's, it's cool. funny you mentioned. It right. It's funny you mentioned the toy, right? Because as as um, many fans know, they originally made the first Boba Fett toy with the action mm-hmm. figure had the you know the the, the rocket firing jetpack, and he was he didn't have a ton of articulation, but he, he could bend over, right? And then you could press a button, and the the jetpack would fire the rocket. Um, but it never made it to store shelves because they were worried about it hitting some a kid in the eye. And poking their eye, um, and so we always like this. This toy is like legendary, right? And we um, we we know that the jetpack fires. We've always really wanted to see it. We saw you know Django Fett do something like that in Attack of the Clones, right. but the fact that we see uh, uh, the marshal, and we'll talk about the marshal himself in just a minute. But the fact that we see the marshal like you know bend over at the waist, uh, just like the toy would have. Uh, and then fire the rocket. And then later in the episode, we actually see him fire the rocket and hit the crate dragon in the eye. Just yep. like everyone was always worried about what happening with kids. It was just, it's the little <laughs> oh, touches. That, <laughs> it's the little touches oh, like that that are just oh. like, oh, you guys are, you guys are brilliant. I'm just so Thank impressed. Thank you for saying in the eye because <laughs> I do remember him firing that, but I'm going to have to go back and watch it. Actually get the crate dragon in yeah. the eye. Yeah, it's great. It is. It's the little details like that that just make this episode so great for like the the the, the fans who followed this kind of stuff for for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah. I don't know. I don't know quite how I feel about this. I'm curious to get both of your thoughts. Uh, I feel like Mandalorian has perfected the art of the. I'm going to call it like the f- obscure fan reference mm-hmm. in the sense of like seeing R5 Boba Fett bending over the waist and shooting the Kray dragon in the eye. Like these are the types of things. No, I'm going to say the word normal and I'm not sure if that's the right <laughs> word or not, but like no normal person would blink an eye at those scenes. Mm-hmm. You would, they would feel completely natural. Right. The right. fact that like, Oh, the shot lingered for half a second on R5 doesn't, it doesn't register. Right. Uh, but it's the type of thing that as Star Wars fans, we can sit here and geek. Like we can literally probably geek out about the different little mini references we see throughout. And we're going to, I know it's going to happen, but <laughs> it's, it's really impressive how good they've gotten it. Just mm. like sneaking these little things in there. Um, I, it's, I, I, it's fascinating to me. 
it's fascinating, but I think the best thing about it is it is showing the love and respect they have for the party and not to sound bad about the uh, sequel trilogy. But this is the attention to detail that I think Star Wars fans are looking for when it came to the sequel trilogy that, that just out. And the actual embrace story and telling a good story and having it work. Even though there's the little nods, we can take out those little nods and looking at it, but still enjoy the story. But then there's that love and respect for the actual property that is being shown in the Mandalorian. And I think as long as it doesn't take away from the story for those who don't know Absolutely. about the references, then it's, it's, it's fantastic. And, and I thought, right. You know, th- you could make the case that in a couple cases in season one, there was kind of that week in an odd, um, I thought this one did a great job of just like having mm-hmm. the pieces, yeah. the things be there. And if you noticed it, right. great. And if you didn't, that's no big deal. For example, one I'll, second I'll of a, film, you're not going to see it. I'll take another one. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, the the marshals and I'm actually avoiding saying his name because we'll talk about who he is in just a second because uh, who he is is also important. The marshals uh, uh, swoop bike is is actually Anakin's pod racer engine. Yep, like pick that one up. Little details like that. It's the seat attached to one of Anakin's pod racer engines is just like it's amazing. And fans of the prequels are like, oh my gosh, I know that that's Anakin's pod mm-hmm. racer. And everyone else, they don't know, they don't care. It yep. just looks like a cool swoop. It's it's just the in it for the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I will say, I think I prefer when it's more wink and nod versus it's the R5 unit. It is Anakin's pod racer. Because to me, those two things do make the universe feel a little bit smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and that everything becomes connected when I don't think it necessarily needs to be. But I... I don't know. I appreciate, I think, the wink more than the nod, if that makes mm. sense. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry, yeah, I think the, 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 like, the reference is, 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 if I had to, like, rank them, a reference followed by just an object or whatever that people recognize, followed by the, um, like, I, I guess what I meant by, like, the wink and the nod is, like, the dramatic more pause, and you're like, hey, did you see this? Uh-huh. And, like, everyone else is like, I don't, people who don't know about it are watching going, I know there's something right there, I just don't know what it is, but, like, clearly right. they were trying to signal. Like, that's when I think it doesn't work. You know, when if it, when it's more of like a, yeah. uh, uh, you know, it doesn't really impact the main plot, then it it works really well. Um, another one of those, though, actually, is the marshal's the marshal himself, right? Because um, he's introduced as the marshal, but he is actually a, um, a a character we previously heard of before too, Cobb Vanth, and you know, he's played by Timothy Oliphant, and. Uh, Cobb Vanth, as you all know, was introduced in the Aftermath novels by Chuck Wendig. As very, they have like very brief chapters in between the main uh, kind of set throughout the galaxy, right? As you were uh, in the interspersed throughout the main story. And one of those chapters in each of the Aftermath books was about this this guy named Cobb Vanth who takes Boba Fett's armor. And sure enough, it's all canon, and they brought Cobb Vanth in, and a lot of his backstory is still. Is is all um, accurate for the most part, which was a nice surprise to see. Yeah, I don't. Uh, so I have to be honest. I don't remember the Cobb Vanth short story at all, but I, I appreciate when characters cross over this way, and I that gets a plus one from me. Yeah, and I'm I'm gonna agree with Steve because I 
completely forgot Chuck Windix. <laughs> probably just find those little short story and Chuck. Um, I mean, the books themselves were not my sorry. favorite, but the fact that they brought him no. back was cool. Um, Anything like that in which they take a book character and bring it into the universe. I really enjoy when they do that because again, that gets into why in some try and reinvent a wheel. If a character is already created, mm-hmm. why trying a new character? And if this is a character that actually works because he actually had Boba Fett and was wearing Boba Fett's armor, bring him into the Mandalorian. It's interesting though. Cause like in, in aftermath, I didn't really care about him at all. I was like, okay, they're trying to like, this guy picks up Boba Fett's armor from some Jawas and, you know, is kind of walking around protecting a town. Like, mm. uh, whatever. Like, I, I, I just want to know Boba, what happened to Boba Fett. Tell me what happened to Boba Fett. Um, you're just trying to replace, it felt like they were just trying to replace Boba Fett with someone else in his armor. Mm. Um, and like be the successor to Boba Fett. I just didn't really care about his character that much. Also, it was like three very short chapters across three different books. So, you know, kind of hard to really get attached. Um, yeah, if it was in one book, it would be easier to remember. Yeah, but in like in this in this episode, I thought they did a fantastic job. Um, you know, uh, I I really liked Cobb Vanth a lot. I thought he was a great mm-hmm. character, and and he he's actually probably one of the better uh, characters in the main one. I feel like they kind of either go into one of two camps. Either the character is kind of like uh, either is, is like amazing, you know, um, or for like the characters with very a little screen time, sometimes they can mm. kind of err on the cheesy side. Um, and I, thought I, I, I know a character from first season that I think would, would for me rank up there. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but I, I really like Cobb Vanth a lot and I was glad we got his backstory that the fact they talked about how, and basically covered the book aftermath, right? The fact that he was living in Mos Pelgo and the empire mm-hmm. fell and pull out of Tatooine. And all of a sudden the mining collective took over and uh, they came in, they started killing a bunch of villagers. He managed to escape and was rescued by Jawas. And because he just happened to have stolen a Kimtono of Salax crystals, which were also in the book, uh, he traded it for some of the Beskar armor, Bubba's armor that the Jawas had. And he went back and freed the town because he now had the armor and can fight off the um, uh, the mining collective and, and protect everyone in the future. And he kind of became their protector but i'm just glad they didn't make us wait to find out they just told us right right there in a flashback gave us the whole thing and it was it was cool it was cool it was well, concise yeah the character to I me i really like the character because he had swagger go ahead steven now, something i really appreciate about this episode as a whole and i think this is a good example of it is william you mentioned this is what a 50 minute episode of mandalorian yep, yeah yeah. And one of the things I'd say I hated about the first season is there were episodes where I was like, I think this was like a 22 minute episode of like live action, which just feels too short for what they're trying to do. Mm. And there was a part because we started the episode, ordered uh, dinner, um, food got here halfway through. And I paused it. I'm like, oh, my God, there's still like 25 minutes left. This is like it, it's a full length hour of television. And the result of that is I felt like the story got to breathe and do these little moments mm-hmm. things like let's just show Cobb Vance backstory uh, we didn't talk about it but like seeing the trip from Moss Eisley to Moss Pelgo um, seeing him stop over with the Tuscan Raiders which we'll talk about more in a moment um, so cool. those little details bring so much to the episode and they're only possible when you're okay with going with a longer time frame because they're not yeah. essential by any stretch of the imagination Cobb Vance kind of said oh yeah I was here I took over as the marshal and you know helped save the town Yeah. period great 
we've saved ourselves, you know, five minutes of footage and filming that we have to do. But by showing it, it just makes it feel that much more interesting. And I remember from even last, I was saying the same thing. The best thing about this is, and you've even touched on it yourself, Stephen, they're given enough time to let the story breathe and say it and at its own pace. This episode did not feel rushed, did not feel like it was dragging to a halt. It was a very good pace throughout the whole thing. And to me, it fit its time perfectly. If they cut it, it probably would have felt rushed. If it was extended out a little bit too long, then it probably would have slowed down. But it was a good storytelling pace for this episode. Yeah, I we talked about a lot in season one. Mandalorian was kind of very much this space western kind of feel. And this episode continued that trend. It was actually something I was worried they would move away from since as it became more mainstream. Like, do they go to a more traditional kind of action adventure kind of story but no like this is still very much it it like it's a classic spaghetti western like our hero rides into town encounters a problem as part of his journey solves the problem moves on on his journey Mm -hmm. um and there's the story elements that we've kind of talked about that make that feel authentic and um well done and then there's this the way it's shot and paced and as you said tom like it's perfect for that it doesn't move fast it doesn't move slow it kind of moves at the like a, a slow amble almost of like yeah. building up to the kind of this finale which is fantastic um and it just i really appreciate when it's you could tell john Favreau had a vision for what this episode was um and it started in concept art and a script and it turned out exactly like that like they mm. just you it was exactly what he wanted out of it you can it yeah. just it shines through so clearly yeah it, it really, it really did. And it's just, yeah, such a great episode. And actually, one of the things I, I, I loved about this episode, too, was how we got to see, well, I, I guess the, the, the crate Dragon fight and how we got to see the, uh, how, how the, how they team up with the Tusken Raiders and how they have to, how that whole relationship works out because we never really that seen... I thought was really cool in the episode yeah, was you know, the uh striking deal with the sand people but we've got we'll, we'll get are we getting there yeah yeah no let's 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 talk think, about that well so. I think we're there so we see the crate dragon come through town and we establish kind of the main thrust of the Mandalorian wants Boba Fett's armor back only Mandalorian should have it right um, feels very real to me mm-hmm. uh they're about to go to words the crate dragon kind of comes through um a different style I think of crate dragon we've seen before and that it's um, I'd say more terrifying. It swims mm-hmm. through the sand and cu- jumps out like a shark. Um, and it, we establish kind of, okay, great. Uh, the Mandalorian and the Marshal have agreed we'll kill the crate Dragon. It's been messing with the town. And then we'll, you know, the Mandalorian will take the armor and move on. Um, and that the first stop is we need more firepower. And I love, love the sequence where the Mandalorian and the marshal encounter the Tuscan Raiders in the Canyon. And this kind of uneasy truce, I suppose I would call it is, uh, created between them. Mm-hmm. Just, but what, I thought for me, what was the coolest thing is when they get into that Canyon, they pull over their bikes and all those, that asses come out and you're just like looking at the, the, the marshal and you can tell the marshal was just like, basically he's thinking they're going to be attacked. And then the Mandalorian just goes, 
Wait a minute. Did Mandalorian stop him or did Mandalorian just start doing the... Uh, he, just, no, he stopped him. He starts doing the right, call, I think, and then he starts petting the... I don't know what I don't know what type of creature he, 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 pet, he pets one of them. He pets one of them, which is just like just just like he would pet a regular dog. Yeah, which was the the coolest thing. And then all of a sudden, here come the Tuscan Raiders. Honestly, I and, should have known what was going on, but for a minute, I thought he was like talking to the massives or something. I I, I didn't realize he was speaking. Story, Tus- yeah. He was speaking Tuscan. Now we know, um, right. which makes sense why they would like start to to warm up to him. Uh, but I was like, how is he communicating with the massives? And yeah. It's, it's a great introduction because it's kind of creepy at first and Cobb is all freaking out. Like, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden the Mandalorian just walks up, calms him down. The Tuscans pop up, pop out. And, uh, and he's got to calm down Cobb because Cobb is like, what's going on? <laughs> right. You right. Know, it's, it, it's one of the, which it is so cool to sit there. You see him around the fire and you know, it's, it's, it's the dynamic where you've got Cobb, you've got the Tuscans, and here's a Tuscan trying to sit here and at least, let's say, break bread with Cobb and offer him this thing to drink, which it's very funny to see something that you're supposed to drink, but it almost looks like there's, like, dust coming out of the thing that they opened up. It didn't look like water or unless it was, like, you know, seltzer or something. And and here you've got Cobb just like, you know, do I need to drink this? This looks nasty and doesn't look like it's going to taste well. And it's really great for the Mandalorian to say, look, if you want your help, if they want your help, you have to do this. We're, we're trying to sit here and create a common bond between you guys. You're going to have to do this. And he doesn't. They almost like yeah, the whole almost thing almost falls fight. apart. Yeah. Uh, but eventually, eventually he does later in the episode. But I just the, the whole dynamic of, you know, in the film, we talked about this a little bit in season one, but in the in the in the in the films, the Tuscan Raiders, the Sand People, have always been portrayed as these really evil uh, 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 creatures, right? And they're mm-hmm. they're they're vicious, mindless monsters, right? Um, and Anakin slaughters them, and they they try to stop the pod races, and you know they, they shoot the pod racers, and you know they attack Luke, and Obi Wan has to scare them off, and all this sort of stuff, and. I- in the Mandalorian, right. we start to realize that, yeah, in the Mandalorian, he acknowledges, yes, they do do a lot of really terrible things, uh, unquestionably. Um, but they're also, they also have some good in them, too. It's a very Star Wars-y thing, right? You know, there, mm. There's still some good in these, in these people. And, you know, maybe you can actually have peace with them and eventually form an alliance. Steven? I really, really appreciate it. There's even... Um, it's, I, did, I go a step further than what you said, William. Like, it's not just that, you know, some Tuscan Raiders, you know, do bad things. It's like that we established these Tuscan Raiders have raided Mos Pelgo specifically before. Yeah. And it's right. one of those things where it really feels like this episode borrowed from Knights of the Old Republic because Knights of the Old Republic also does a lot. Like, you go in, can go into a Tuscan Raider camp. Mm-hmm. You can go in and slaughter them all, or you can go in with a translator and learn to speak to them and learn about their history and lo- see this kind of tension between, hey, yeah, like the Tuscan Raiders are attacking because you're stealing their water and that's causing issues. Like, of course they need water. And I just, I loved that level of detail that we got to see of just these, like, yeah, they're, they're just trying to figure this out. And like these two people are, you know, at odds, but they can mm-hmm. join together, I guess. Like, it just, yeah. I really appreciated seeing that type Did, of detail didn't, here. Didn't even tell Cobb, you know, they, he says something to the effect of like, they know about Mos Pelgo. They know how many people you killed. And, and 
and Cobb yeah. Vanth is like, but yeah. they attacked us, you know, and he yeah. still has to try to um, uh, make peace with them. You know, they, they, they're, they're both just so angry at each other. Mm-hmm. And yeah, thankfully, uh, yeah. Din Djarin's persuasion score was high enough and you know, we were able to get <laughs> <Yeah>. the... <laughs> The, the other thing I really enjoyed about this is they went back to doing the whole sign language thing again for the communication. Mm-hmm. And that was, I, I enjoy that because it does show, yes, it was established in episode four that they are, you know, warrior, it's epi- you know, back to the prequels that, you know, they're, they're this, but I really appreciate how they're bringing a little bit more humanity mm-hmm. into the Tuscan Raiders and they're showing mm-hmm. them that they can communicate and, Sure, they can be who they are, but they're doing it for a reason. Right. Done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when they realize so, that they're up against these massive odds, right, with, with the crate dragons, way bigger than they ever thought, they can't do it alone. And they realize, yeah, we can, if, if the villagers of Mos Pelgo can join forces with the Tuscan Raiders and all work together, they can rid the area of this, of this crate dragon. And, mm. And it'll be better for our, for everyone, uh, and 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 in the process, they're able to establish this this lasting peace, this truce. Where uh, it's you know. not it's not necessarily lasting. I really appreciated the line of, <laughs> yeah, like the the Tuscan Raiders agree not to attack, uh, like to stop raiding Mos Pelgo until you shoot one of them. Right. Like, right. Until you, yeah. If you break the peace, they it all all bets are off the table. But right. I, it was a cool detail. It, but but within within the Tuscan community, don't you kind of agree with them? If they're going to make peace with you, don't do anything oh. stupid to break it because we do have the right to come back oh, yeah. at you. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I just yeah. I, no no no. I I, I totally get it. And yeah. and that that's actually that's actually what I loved about this because now the two have to figure out a way to keep it peaceful. Mm-hmm, exactly. But they have the an opportunity. They have wrong. an opening now. Yeah. And I just, I appreciate that it. The Mandalorian doesn't leave Mos Pelgo, and we don't feel we don't like. Oh yeah, the Tuscan Raiders and Mos Pelgo will have peace for a thousand years. Yeah, we don't, no, no, not yeah. at all. We like we of the the fact that they've met like just these one or two lines really makes again it opens up the world so much because it starts to feel like no, you didn't solve the problems. You've mm-hmm. created a change in the situation, uh, and we hope it will last as long as possible. But I really just really appreciate that it no it. It feels realistic. These right. we don't know how this is going to end up, you know, hundred years down the line. But it's we've made a difference in the mean, like in the meantime, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, Tom. Yes, sir. I don't know about you, but it, the scene. So the marshal and the Mandalorian, the Tuscan Raiders have agreed. They now need to go sell the villagers on it. So that, you know, the marshal calls a town hall. Right. I don't know about you. I was getting some major blazing saddles vibes <laughs> from <laughs> that entire sequence. I I actually. I actually, there is a, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go back a little bit to the further beginning of the episode that we kind of skipped over. There was a bit of a blazing saddles kind of vibe more to the part to where the child kind of was by the spittoon, um, that ended up, he ended up hiding in the middle of it. But if we want to go back, he ended up hiding in it, which I thought was very funny. But if you want to go to this one, now that you bring it up, you're, you're kind of right. I, I I would have loved to have seen like a Gabby character. Those of you who've seen the movie would understand that or somebody get up and go, Rawr! but yeah. Um, yeah, but I, now that you bring it up, it, it, it had, but the, the best thing about it though, it, for me, it had that Western, 
you know, to me, it had a better feeling than, let's say, the episode where uh, the uh, uh, Bryce Dallas Howard episode where they had to talk to the villagers and they were out in the open. This one felt a little bit better, a little bit more natural because it felt more like like this whole thing, like the Western. And yes, it did have that blazing saddles feel to it, but it had a natural Western feel to it. That These people are just like, you know, no, we, we can't, we can't do that. But when it's actually explained, if you don't do this, this will happen. And it's for the good of our, you know, our little Western town that needs to survive. It, it worked, but now to bring up the blazing saddles aspect, I'm going to have to watch it one more time. And hopefully Gabby's in there somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, it's just this feeling of, you know, these are <laughs> so I'm they're borrow, simple folk. I'm gonna borrow, these are simple folk. Simple they're folk. People of the land. Yes. <laughs> like it's just Don't yeah, go further. It. Don't go further. I know, I'm not going any further. Don't go further. Because I can see the Gene Wilder <laughs> coming up right now. <laughs> but it's just I just I really appreciated that how the you know the how this entire sequence comes together. We the Mandalorian has allied these two people tentatively. And now we get to go fight the crate dragon. And not just any crate dragon. And sorry, we didn't actually talk about this. Before they get back to the town, the scene where they go and see the crate dragon sleeps. Mm-hmm. And you see the Tuscan Raider bring out the Bantha. And you know, they're, you know, they're kind of talking. It's like, yeah, so what they do is, you know, they try and the crate dragon causes problems for them. They really, they're, they've tried a lot of different things. You know, they try and feed it more because when they feed it more, it sleeps longer. Mm-hmm. And you watch the crate dragon come out and eat the Tuscan Raider. And that the dead man <laughs> delivery of... They're looking for new ideas. <laughs> I, I, fresh I, ideas. So and they, they, I just about died uh, laughing when that came up. I, and you really shouldn't because you felt so sorry for that Tuscan Raider. And the Bantha but didn't get touched. The Bantha yep. was just still sitting there. And the Tuscan Raider is the one that goes. <laughs> oh, it's so great. It is so like that whole. You could almost say just, that would have been a Blazing Saddles moment right there. That actually was too in many ways. Yeah, uh, but it's, it's, it's solid. So like, and actually, I'll say I'll go a step further. Like, um, Humor has not always been Star Wars' strong point, um, right. but that was that was perfect. Yeah, that was perfect. Yeah, it was it was great. It was it was great. Um, and then, of course, as you said, that that's what leads them to 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 end up working with the villagers and to go to go back and, and try to take out the the uh, the the crate dragon again. And we even got a little reference to the sarlacc, where apparently this this cave used to be a sarlacc, and the crate dragon ate it. Um, and, which is super interesting. Although I don't think it was the great pit of a carcoon that we saw in Return of the Jedi. No. I think it's a different Sarlacc. But it first, seemed like it was a different, definitely a different location. But watching it first time, I was like, "Oh, is this is this where we're gonna get Boba Fett? Like, are they gonna somehow Boba is gonna come out, you know, and be rescued in some way? Or no, it wasn't. But it was still an amazing, amazing action sequence. Like. This this is where I was talking about earlier, like the scope and the scale of of it just was felt so much bigger because you had all of the yeah. villagers now, you know, and they start to <clears throat> plant explosive charges underneath the sand to, to, so they could attack the crate dragon's vulnerable belly wall, you know, and then uh, uh, you know hopefully we'll wake it up, you know, because it was sleeping, wake it up and then and try to. Uh, uh, take it out with all the, the, the explosive charges and they've got, you know, harpoon guns, uh, the ballistas right there to, to, to shoot them and everything. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, nothing but, goes as, as planned, but, right, but you're, you're, you're missing, you're missing one caveat uh-huh. that they're burying the explosives 
they're trying to get it out, but there's one caveat. You have to attack it in its most vulnerable spot, right. and that's the belly. They had to get it perfectly to where the stomach of the Krite Dragon was right over those explosives for it to have any impact. I will say, I was a little sad that the when they were all bringing out the explosives, my kind of first take was actually that they were going to try and get the Krite Dragon to swallow the explosives, which is obviously yeah. how the episode yeah, that's what I That was, that was yeah. what I thought my fiance mentioned it as well as we were watching it. And, and it's and that's also like that's literally what, what you do in Knights of the Old Republic. Like you're mm-hmm. you lure out a crate dragon. It it you know goes through a bunch of mines. The mines don't impact it, and you know the people who've been hunting it get killed. So you come back out there and you uh, kill a bant, like put a bunch of bantha there. You put thermal detonators inside of them, and the crate dragon comes out, eats it, swallows the thermal detonator, explodes, and dies. And mm-hmm. you're rewarded uh, with a pearl. Like it, the episode is literally the Kotar quest. <laughs> So yes, which, which is was, amazing. Which is, which which is why when you said it felt like a game, game quest earlier, I was like, that, that game. yeah. That's why when you mentioned it felt like a video game quest earlier, I'm like, yeah, it, it is exactly yeah, a it, Kotar it, it quest. It ends exactly, which is perfect, <laughs> and I love it. Um, but I, I will say, I think my favorite part of this fight, and this is, this was similar to, I think it was, was it episode three in season one or chapter three, mm. where you get the, the Mandalorians on, I don't remember the name of the planet, um, <laughs> on, uh, where Navarro. they're all fighting. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. The Mandalorian oh, yeah, yeah, and Navarro. Yeah. You get the like, the like again. If you think about the Star Wars, is you are playing with a bunch of action figures. That was the like, oh man, I've got all these Mandalorians and they come flying over the hill, and there's this big battle, and it feels super cool with jetpacks, everything. This watching the Marshal and uh, why am I the Mandalorian like take mm-hmm. off to try and distract it, and you know land on the hill, shoot it a bunch, jump around to the side as it tries to bite them. Mm-hmm. Amazing, just now amazing now one other thing what did you guys think of of the cry dragon spinning acid oh that was one thing that was just like whoa never saw that one coming i yeah not what i expected that was uh yeah. painful looking yeah i loved it and i thought they did a pretty good job because you know the mandalorian tries to be pretty family friendly uh mm-hmm. but so it looked like really it looked very good uh, it very, looks like slime, if you want to put it that way. By but being, quote, but quote, like they friend, also did it, friendly, friendly. they shot it in just a way that it, it you know, you got, it wasn't like you were seeing people's like bodies melting, but they're just got covered in this acid and they would just be gone, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it was just really well done. Um, yeah. You could make the argument. Are they there? Oh, the acid, it, the saliva is just knocking them to the ground. <laughs> yeah. Versus, yeah. No, they were literally disintegrated. I think there was one shot where it was much more clear that no, I yeah. think they're just gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I I loved it, and, and Stephen, to your point, like the the when they're flying all around, it just felt like, you know, your your dream, you know, playing with action figures when you were younger, um, seeing, seeing all that, uh, it's just it was, it was so so good, and of course, you know, the the original plan with the explosives doesn't work, um, and and so that's when you know they go and attack, and then the crate dragon comes back, uh, to the ground and everyone's dying everyone's running away nothing's working and that's when we get the thing as i as i mentioned earlier in the show where Cobb shoots the crate dragon in the eye with the jetpack rocket mm-hmm. and then and then the mandalorian grabs the detonator from him hits the back of his jetpack just like han solo did in return of the jedi yeah and sends Cobb flying uh, and also tells him don't forget to protect the protect the child right it's just it's the little yeah. little things like that the way he just like smacked the jetpack and made him go like spinning out of there while he's like th- in that shot of the mandalorian just holding onto the bantha with all of the explosives like tr- struggling to, to keep it there and then just gets swallowed up by the crate dragon 
so well done. Oh, just fantastic. Especially how the Mandalorian escapes when you sit there and, and, and you see just all that blue stuff around the crate dragon's mouth and you see him come out and then he's just standing there and just presses the button and the crate dragon just goes boom. boom. So good. Yeah. Literally everything about this <sighs> fight sequence was, was just amazing. And, you know, I think it's kind of telling that, uh, that I, I missed it actually the first time I watched it, which is, it's funny because how, how, how easy it is to miss, miss these, these sort of things. Um, the aspect ratio actually changes uh, really during the entire crate dragon fight from the moment. And uh, uh, our friend of the show, uh, Bruce Gibson noted this. Uh, we were talking about the episode. He, he mentioned this first. I was like, Oh my gosh, you're right. The moment the three Tusken Raiders start to run to the cave, uh, start to run away mm-hmm. from the cave to, uh, to the right, the very end, right before the credits at the, with the big reveal. Uh, it's all, um, it fills up the entire screen. Uh, and then it goes back to widescreen for the rest of the episode. Uh, and it kind of more of like an IMAX style shot, you know. So if you're I'll in, the, in the movie theater, you get the, you I get the never picture. noticed. Yeah, really, really cool. First time the series has done that. Um, kind of like what you know, The Force Awakens did. Uh, but you could tell, like they just they changed the aspect ratio, so you really get the full weight of the the battle sequence against the the Kray Dragon. It was. It was great, and then the fact that you know, the Tusken Raiders had said they would they would kill the tra- crate dragon. All they wanted to return was the was the the meat, right, uh, of the of the of the crate. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all the villagers are watching the, the the Tusken Raiders hacking away at the carcass, and the Tusken Raiders, you know, pick out the pearl. And at first, my first gut was like, my first, my gut reaction was like, oh, okay, like this is you know, it, it kind of feels very similar to you know, we defeated the Mudhorn and then you know got the the egg. And to give it to the Jawas, and I was like, "Wait a minute, it's the <laughs> pearl, the pearl from the from Legends." You know, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, this it's is amazing." <laughs> the only question is, in one of the best parts about killing the crate dragon in the old Knights of the Old Republic is you get the dragon pearl, or sorry, the crate pearl, whatever it's called, uh-huh. uh, and then it makes it's an awesome upgrade for your lightsaber. It fits right, inside the right. lightsaber. Yeah. I don't know if this one fits. <laughs> oh well, God, I, I don't think so. It'll fit inside of a Death Star, but it wouldn't fit, fit inside of a lightsaber. It'll, just, it'll be one of those lightsabers that's, um, you know, like it's a little glow stick, like right. it's got a little light bulb on top, right? Right. Oh God. Yeah, but the way that thing was huge. I've heard that also had it over its head. Now I'm trying to remember. I heard some people say that sometimes there's a kyber crystal within the pearl, which is not what Kotar did. But not at all. I, um, I don't the know. thing that I saw some discussion around was there are different types of crate dragons. Yeah. There's like greater crate dragons and canyon dragons and canyons are the ones that tend to be on top of the sand versus the mm-hmm. greater, which, you know, clearly swim underneath, uh, which, you know, I totally buy. Yeah, I just I love it. I love it was it. fantastic. Um, like, and that's basically the end basically, of the episode, you know? Yeah, like this is basically Knights of the Old Republic, the episode, and I love it. Mm-hmm. I love this episode. It was really good. Was, it was great. And that was basically it, right? Nothing really else happened, right? I no, mean, nothing else happened. No, the, the Mandalorian no, no, walks no, away, no, and, shot, and that's that it. Long right? shot at the end. No, no, no. Nothing <laughs> happened in that one. No. Oh, that 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 last shot. Okay, were you guys expecting the last shot at this point? At this point, no. Like, obviously, there were lots of rumors that Boba Fett was going to be in the season. I didn't take the Marshall to mean he wasn't going to be there, but I assumed it would happen later on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like they got they gotten their fake out. I assumed they were done for this for for today. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, there's a you know just a, another character moment to reveal briefly. Okay. But but the question the question now becomes this. Okay, the rumor has always been that. 
a Mandalorian lived in this town. But it was only a rumor. So does that mean at this point is the is the Mandalorian, since there was no real Mandalorian in that town, is he going to stick around Tatooine and leave? Or you mean is the he marshal gonna, or the marshal? Sorry, sorry, the marshal. Yeah, sorry. I, I, no, 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 I mean, was... so, okay, wait a minute. Let me, let me, let me back up. Um, the Mandalorian was told that there was a Mandalorian that was living in, in the marshal's village. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So now that basically Mando has figured out that the marshal is not a real Mandalorian. Okay. Does he think that the rumor now is quote unquote false? and leaves Tatooine or do you think because at the end we saw the little reveal do you think that now Boba Fett before Mando leaves is going to search him out I don't know like and I guess the big question is so the end of the episode reveals Tamara Morrison which is yep. so great to see Tamara Morrison back on screen. Obviously, Tamara Morrison played yep. all of the. He played Jango Fett. He played all of the clone troopers in, uh, in Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Tamara Morrison is back. Is he Boba Fett? That's question number one. Is he Boba Fett? <sighs> I think he is. I, I think I he is. So, yeah. I think he is. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, Boba would be forty-one, roughly like 41, 42 years old, about around this time, and you know, a clone. Obviously, there's some clones that didn't that had less genetic modifications, like the Bad Batch, but you know, most clones would be closer to eighty years old at this point uh, due to the growth acceleration. So, uh, you know, it it, it definitely looks like it's a, he's the right age to be Boba. I don't think they can tease all of this and show Cobb Vanth and his armor and not have Boba Fett come back. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the fact that the, the, the end reveal in this episode. <clears throat> so I, I do think it is Boba Fett. Um, but man, it's, it's, it's awesome. I, I was not expecting to bring Boba in this early. I thought it was going to be okay. a lot later in the season. Okay. So here's another question for you. Do you think if they do bring Boba Fett back this way, do you think he's going to want his armor back? Or do you think, well, do you think he is a, a key to help the Mandalorian find the Jedi or find, you know, the child species? I mean, how it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to use yeah. Boba Fett now. Like, will he be an ally or an adversary? Good point. Uh, is he is he going after the bounty? Is he still being is he still a bounty hunter or is he and he just happens to be living on Tatooine? What's he been up to for the last five years since mm-hmm. he you know, uh, when to the Sarlacc, how did he escape? I, I, I have a feeling they'll, they'll answer all of these questions. Yeah. And that's, that's actually a good question. Is he a bounty hunter still? Because he did have the gaffy sticks. He did have mm-hmm. the, the rifles on his back, but you know, he didn't have his armor. Is he living um, with the Tuscan Raiders? I don't think yeah, I so. Mean, that, I, that, that's, there's so many questions, yeah. Steven, what Steven, do you have the answers? No, of course I don't have answers. Okay. Um, I thought I'd ask I would, it. I'm guess I don't think he's a, Part of the Tuscan Raiders. I'm assuming he's been in the desert for some amount of time. He's Obi. He's I think old bending it up. Pardon? I, maybe he seems. So the question is, sorry, the question is, what is what is his motivation been? Mm-hmm. He's he's in the desert. He's got, his primary motivation is to survive. We're I think far enough after episode six at this point that it's not. 
and uh, let's see, Cobb Vance seems to have been around with the armor long enough. Like, we assume the armor came out at the same time as Fett. Like, mm-hmm. I find it very suspicious if, like, Boba Fett was hunting down Cobb Vance, and mm-hmm. this is, and he just was about to get him when the Mandalorian shows up. Like, that doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. No, it doesn't feel so right, my because assu- I think he would have had him by now. Yeah, exactly. So my assumption yeah. is Boba Fett's been living off the land a little bit Obi-Wan style, maybe uh having some dealing with his failure of you know whatever his life has been up to this point <laughs> and perhaps he sees the mandalorian and that's going to be the trigger um that's the like hey i used to be part of something bigger maybe i can be again mm-hmm. yeah but that's a good question to where is it something bigger to he's going to go back to being bounty hunter and he's going to figure out about the child and he's going to go after the child or is it going to be something bigger to where he's going to help the mandalore the mando get the child to where it's going to yeah. be and then go basically back to Mandalore or Mandalorian and, and go yeah. into hiding with the rest of the Mandalorians. Well, so, okay. So the interesting thing is like, is he actually a Mandalorian? Does he consider himself to be a Mandalorian? Uh, is he c- plugged into the Mandalorian covert network? Right. Or, or is he just a dude who like Cobb Vanth who had Mandalorian armor and then lost it and has now been living off the land. Mm-hmm. Um, is he going after uh, Din Djarin and and the child, or is he just wanting his armor back? Will he even get the armor back? Like, if you think about it, if he's not a Mandalorian, and Din Djarin, it feels very strongly, as we clearly see, about uh, about non-Mandalorians having Beskar. So mm-hmm. if Boba Fett's not a Mandalorian, there's no way that Din Djarin is giving that armor to Boba. Mm-hmm. And that could result in some tension. That could result in um, a big battle, potentially, or, or a conflict. Um, you know, but maybe he also has the information that, that Din Djarin needs to find the next, uh, you know, to find the next uh, uh, step in the journey. Or maybe his promise has been too long. Like, any information Boba Fett had about the Jedi would... Huh. Sorry, I'm just thinking now. Any information well, Boba Fett had about the Jedi would be out of date. Although he did, he has met Ahsoka. Like he's mm-hmm. so it, maybe he knows how to find Ahsoka in some way, or he knows how to find another character who knew Ahsoka uh, to to connect the Mandalorian with the Jedi. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But here's the other question that that you also bring up a very valid point. Okay, is Boba Fett a Mandalorian? You've already seen. Mando uh, Din basically just almost almost shoot the marshal for taking the helmet off because that's against the creed. But what's he going to do if it is still rumored Bo-Katan mm-hmm. if that character appears? Bo-Katan takes and, and, and her her Mandos appear to be on the side of we can take our helmet off. Same thing with Sabine Wren's clan. They can take their helmets off. Same thing with the protectors of Concord Dawn. They take their helmets off. So are they trying to establish there is the Mandalorians that live by a certain creed and then there's another set of Mandalorians like Bo-Katan and everybody I just mentioned that live by a different creed? Then technically that could mean Boba Fett could be in the one that is under Bo-Katan's creed. We don't even know if Bo-Katan and the other Mandalorians we've seen previously even still... Like they may have adopted this new way of life. That's very that's you know, very true. And also the way. and also you could put this in in perspective as well. We don't know after the purge if that sect of Mandalorians, 
survived. Mm -hmm. Because all we know is there's culverts, they're in hiding, and there's very few. Yeah, and and Din was rescued by, from what we can tell, the Death Watch. Right. Uh, And so there's a lot of of interesting stuff there. Bo-Katan is, um, you know, if she does, who knows if she'll show up in the series, but we've already seen the Darksaber introduced. And now right. it's in Moff Gideon's possession. Last time we saw it, it was in Bo-Katan's possession. She was uniting the clans of Mandalore. She's going to be much older now. So right. there, there's a potential where we could end up back in a situation just like in, in Legends where Boba Fett takes takes the Darksaber and ends up becoming uh, you know, the, 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 the leader of, of, the, of Mandalore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't think Boba Fett considers himself a Mandalorian. Not in the same way, if I had to guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, nothing we see... Like, obviously, some of this is changes because you know, the Mandalorian culture as of Episode 2 didn't really exist yet, um, I don't think. But nothing from Jango Fett's behavior feels right with how the rest of the culverts kind of act. Like... Mm-hmm selling out to kind of make like Jango Fett was kind of a sellout. Like he was a bounty hunter. They worked for the empire. Mm -hmm. None of those feels like things that the Mandalorians we see in season one would do. So I, I wonder if part of this may be the, 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 I don't call it the Mandalorian, Mandalorianization of Boba Fett. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I will say, I hope we don't see Boba Fett take up the dark saber. That, to me, will feel a little too much like parts of Legends that I wasn't as big a fan of, but I would love to see Bo-Katan uh, as part of that. Like, that feels like the more correct evolution of what we've seen thus far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll see. I, and I guess well, the question is, do we see Boba Fett next week, or do they drag out that plot point? I I hope we see Boba Fett next week. I would assume next but... week. I'm, I'm not going to be a big fan, like, if Boba Fett... Because it, it comes down to Boba Fett's motivation. I'm a, right. I think this only makes sense if Boba Fett happens across this this effectively what happens in this episode and chooses to kind of go after um, the Mandalorian. Yeah. It's going to feel weird if he like Jin leaves her another planet and Boba Fett decides randomly start tracking him down. Like that's just if he cared that much to track him down, why would he not have done anything in that vein earlier? Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm assuming we're going to see him next week. Yeah. Okay. What do you think? So here's Cobb, another- Cobb Vanth. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah. I'd love to see him again. I actually, I, I, I'm out of all the characters so far, uh, even going back into first season, I really like this character. It, the, to me, somehow I'm watching that character on screen. He pulled, it was so natural to see him up there. I didn't see, you know, any, not that it happened in the first season, but the actor who played this character was natural in it. I, I felt like, it wasn't a joke. It was um, nothing that I could say. He was, you know, walking through these lines. He actually felt like he was a marshal of a Western town that cared for the people and wanted to take care of business and keep protected. I just yep. loved how the guy portrayed the character. Yeah, he did a fantastic job. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I thought... Timothy Oliphant did a really, really great job. And I, I hope I do hope we get more of him. But I'm also excited oh, I, to see Tamara Morrison and and what he does with presumably Boba, Boba Fett. Fett. Yeah. Um, Where? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh gosh. This just 
Uh, it's so it's so so good. Uh, yeah, even yeah. Joe would be proud. Yeah, I, I I didn't actually get a chance. One thing I was gonna do before we recorded, I didn't ran out of time, but uh, to try to compare the the crate dragon sounds between the different versions of A New Hope, oh, see which one was yeah, the closest. Yeah, that's that, that's that's a little uh, too much for me, William. But uh, uh, yeah, I think that that'd be fascinating. It, it sounded I, I like the crate dragon though. I thought it was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love how it was able to come out through those hills when they're sitting there thinking it was all in the ground. Yeah. And all of a sudden they look up in the mountains and it's coming out of the mountain. I I, I, I hate to make a quote unquote Disney reference, but it kind of looked like Chernabog from uh, that one part of Fantasia where it's like coming out of this mountain. I mean, I'm like, oh my God, that is so freaking cool. Sorry. It was. It was. Well, Well, time for reviews. I think so. Steven, you want to go first? You would. Um, or sorry, sorry, I'd say uh, like Boba Fett. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm gonna have to give this, I think, a nine and a half out of ten. Uh, this is pretty much my perfect Mandalorian episode. Like, we kind of work our way towards the main plot. We have an awesome side story. Deep characters expand the universe. Awesome fight scene with a crate dragon. Uh, borrows heavily from Knights of the Old Republic. Uh, in so many ways, which I just, that makes it even better. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna give it a nine and a ten, nine and a half out of ten Womp Rats. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm stretching to come up with one, but uh, here's the thing. So the the Tuscan Raiders have tried many things in order to defeat the Crate Dragon. Um, and the reason they actually didn't try the kind of, hey, let's put explosives on the Bantha trick is they actually tried that first. They tried putting thermal detonators on nine and a half Womp Rats um, and kind of set them free, you know, in front of the Crate Dragon's lair to, uh, you know, lure it out. But, you know, Womp Rats are really tricky. They don't stay still. And so they uh, suffered some unfortunate casualties. The Womp Rats spread out with the thermal detonators, ran back into the Tuscan camps, and it just, it was a mess. So that's why they didn't try that originally, is the, the Tuscan Raiders had some really bad experiences with that in the past. <laughs> Too funny. Nice, nice. Tom? I'm giving this a nine. I'd give it higher, but you see, the thing is, I don't know if the next episode's going to make it higher. I'd like to give myself a little bit more room. So I'm giving this episode a nine. I just, I love the episode. Love the feel. Um, can't wait to see what's what's going to happen in chapter 10. I was going to say episode two, but it's actually chapter 10. So um, my nine Womp Rats. It's kind of hard now because it, you, you, you can't use them on the Crate Dragon because that failed. Um... You know what? My nine Womp Rats were actually keeping the child entertained when all the battle was going on. Yes, the child sat there and watched everything going on in horror. But the nine Womp Rats were there to kind of give the child comfort. Because in the next episode, they may not survive. So, okay, there you go. Seems, seems reasonable. Yeah, it seems reasonable. William, William you're up. Well, I, 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 Thomas, uh, Tom, Thomas, why did I say Thomas? Tom, it's okay. <laughs> Going the more formal route. Uh, I'm That's actually okay. with you. The, um, I thought this was a, this is a fantastic episode. I'm going to give it a nine out of 10. I, I thought this was, I, I loved how long the episode was. I love how great the visual effects were and how big and, 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 and it felt in scope. Uh, I love the character of Cobb Vanth. I love the, 
the crate dragon, the music. We didn't get a talk, chance to talk about the music, but it was just incredible. And and thankfully, they were able to still record the music. They were t- um, John Favreau was and Dave Filoni were actually talking about how um, Ludwig Göransson. Uh, it was actually pretty difficult to to record the the score because of uh, the COVID and everything. They, they they couldn't. It was difficult to to get all the musicians in one place for the orchestra, but they were able to to make it work. So thankfully, we got more of the music. I would love to see the the soundtrack come out. I don't know why that it hasn't come out yet. Last season they and for the Clone Wars they kind of dropped it every every week. Uh, so hopefully we'll get more of the soundtrack. But uh, honestly, everything just felt amazing. There wasn't a ton of the child uh, for the Baby Yoda fans out there, but I, I think, there was some, honestly I think that was for the best. I, I think it worked. I, really I think do. it worked great. Honestly, I think yeah. it was just the right amount, some cute reactions and that sort of thing. I'm glad they're not like overcorrecting and just going mm-hmm. too much in in that in that vein um and it's just a fun episode so yeah i'm gonna give it nine womp rats uh out of out of ten and you know uh, thankfully um it was a very it was a very lucky day because all uh all the, the 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 twin sons on tatooine shown on all nine of the womp rats tales um and so you know as as Cobb vanth says that that's a it's a very lucky day indeed when you have not just su- the twin suns shining on one Womp Rat's tail, but but nine of them. <laughs> so they're just like mine. They lived another, lived to see another day. Yeah, I did, yeah, didn't do anything. Uh, didn't do okay. anything. The Womp Rats, yeah, they kept them uh, alive. Stephen, what do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> I mean, what do you want me to say? Like it's it okay. wasn't. They weren't supposed to die. The t- I mean, I take that back. They were supposed to they die. Were. They were supposed to be eaten by the crate dragon, but not, you know. Look, just womp rats are unpredictable. You never know what they're going to do. Yeah. It's dangerous. Yeah. I know. And we, we got to see them in this episode too, right? Those are the little yeah, guys I was gonna say, that, around. We didn't talk about it at all. Weird, yeah. because it's so critical to everything that this podcast is. But yeah, we got to see womp rats multiple times this episode, which is always Lots fantastic. of references. The child got called a womp rat. References yeah. the womp, the sun shining on the womp rats. We saw womp rats. This is just womp rats everywhere. <laughs> Not that anyone really <sighs> cares. Uh, but uh, coming up next week on Ion Cannon, we have the Mandalorian chapter ten to be determined. Um, yeah, we don't know what the don't know what the synopsis is. Don't know what the title is, but I know it's gonna be it's gonna be a great episode. I'm very excited to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't know it's going to be a great episode, but I have a feeling based on what they've set up in the premiere. I'm sure it's going to be, if they can keep it up, this is going to be a, a really great season. So, and and they've they've started out so, with a really good jumping off point here. Yeah. They really did. Yeah, there's a lot of potential. I think this show is is really firing on all cylinders at this point. Uh, yeah, and I'm I'm just glad that they've. Uh, that we're able to get a season two that it's they're just doing such a great job the mandalorian is like the the star wars thing right now it is the the premier star wars uh uh experience and uh i'm here for it yeah not only are you here for it william but you're gonna be here for it every week for the next what 10 weeks every week for the next eight weeks uh yeah so with that, uh, I want to thank you all for listening, and we will be back very soon with our review of Chapter 10. So glad to have Mando back. Thank you for listening to the Ion Cannon Podcast, your source for entertainment reviews from a galaxy far, far away. 
For over a decade, Ion Cannon has covered every corner of the saga, from the films and animated series like The Clone Wars and Rebels, to books, comics, games, and more. If you like what you hear, please rate us in your favorite podcast client. Your review will help this show grow within the Star Wars community. We can be found at our website, ioncannoncast.com, and you can follow us through Facebook and Twitter. To email us, you can do so at contact at ioncannoncast.com. The Ion Cannon Podcast is not associated with Lucasfilm, The Walt Disney Company, or any and all of their respective trademarks or copyright holders. Any opinion expressed on the show are that of the hosts. This podcast is a production by fans, for fans, and is copyright 2018.